0: Welcome to this episode of Heart Failure in Focus. I'm your host Muthu Vanaganathan and this podcast is hosted by Radcliffe Medical Education and is supported through an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Please note this podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. Hello everyone and welcome back to Heart Failure in Focus. We really have a special episode in store for you um, and this is in follow-up to the European Society of Cardiology. I am really thrilled and delighted to have Professor Carolyn Lamb with me. Um, and it's an honor mostly because she is really world-renowned as an expert and leader in heart failure. Uh, professor Lamb is a senior consultant at the Singapore National Heart Institute. She's a professor, Duke uh, NUS Cardiovascular Sciences, Academic Clinical Program, and a scientific advisor. Um, uh, of the Health Clinical Trials Coordinating Center. Above all else, she's really a trialist, professor, educator, innovator, inventor, and most importantly, a friend. And Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
1: Professor Vaduganathan, it's right back at you. My goodness, the honor is mine. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited um, about the discussion we're about
0: to have. Perfect. So let's dive right in. This is a uh, very unique episode in that we uh, it's really a follow-up after the European Society of Cardiology and really the buzz that was created around, again, SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure. You and I, along with Professor Solomon and McMurray, had a dedicated symposium towards the end of the ESC Congress and we received dozens of questions about some of the practical implications and practical use of SGLT2 inhibitors. And so we pared that down and we'll focus on the top 10 questions received about practical use of SGLT2 inhibitors. So I'm gonna start and I'll ask you, uh, Carolyn, and um, with the first question here, um, and it's certainly a common one that we receive. Um, and it's about diuretic therapy. And so it's a two-part question. Um, really, the first part is about, can we use diuretics amongst patients receiving intravenous diuretics? Can we use SGLP2 inhibitors amongst people receiving intravenous diuretics? And the second part is, what do we do about oral diuretic therapy when we start it, for instance, in ambulatory care?
1: Oh, great question. Let me cut straight to it. I think the answer is yes. And I say this because, first of all, I like the way you phrase it, can we give the IV diuretic while waiting for an echo? And I think that just as we now approach the congestive state of heart failure, regardless of ejection fraction, with an intravenous loop diuretic, we also know without a shadow of a doubt now in my own view, that SGLT2 inhibitors work regardless of ejection fraction. And so, the key is if we are sure this is heart failure with fluid overload, congestion, the hemodynamic state, then yes, in the absence of any of the known contraindications, two SGLT2 inhibitors, I absolutely think that we can be giving it. Now, in deliver, we did have this subacute cohort that was quite large. Um, Those that was started in hospital was about 10%. But if you add those started within 30 days of hospitalization was a bigger group. And the the medication was shown to be just as efficacious, and we think, of course, safe um, in these patients. So I think the answer is yes. Now, we do not think, though, that this is something that we should be dabbling around with in a patient about to go into cardiogenic shock in acute pulmonary edema where we should be, uh, uh, you know, calling maybe um, life-saving device therapies in and, and extracorporeal um, um, hemodynamic support and things like that, not in that kind of strait, patients which were not included in deliver, but otherwise, um, it's a good good idea. Now, with the oral diuretics, I know a lot of people were saying, do we need to now reduce the dose of oral diuretics when we introduce an SGLT2 inhibitor and so on? Well, I like to look at the data um, that came from the DAPA-HF trial, and this is patients with HFREF and who are on higher doses of oral diuretics and so on. And when we look at DAPA-HF, there was not much change in the oral diuretic doses. And um, I I you know, adding dapoglifosin was safe. So I don't think so, but we need to take it on a case-by-case basis. And of course, if we detect dehydration or hypovolemia in a patient, that's when you can think of reducing the dose of loop diuretics. What do you think?
0: So wonderful, and I can't improve on that. It's, uh, it's in, exactly in line with uh, how I would approach both the acute setting and that chronic phase in terms of oral diuretic use.
1: Oh, that's awesome, thanks. And hey, could I now move to go on to a question that I always hear? It's like, what's up with the mortality benefit? We know increased heart failure hospitalization increases mortality. And yet, why didn't we see that the SGLT2 inhibitor significantly reduced cardiovascular mortality? We didn't see that despite the fact that it significantly lowered heart failure hospitalization.
0: Oh, it's, it's a perfect question, and it comes up often. Um, it's a good reminder that mortality in general in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is markedly lower than adjacent populations of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And furthermore, none of the individual trials, whether reduced or preserved ejection fraction with the sglt 2 inhibitors, were powered for either all cause mortality or cardiovascular mortality. And so that is to say that while these are powered primarily for worsening heart failure events and the composite alongside mortality, um, really the estimates around mortality themselves are, are going to be unstable, even based on the design, because of relatively limited sample size and relatively short term follow up. That said, when the available evidence from the two largest trials, deliver and Ember Preserve, we do see a very strong signal. We see that the there's about a 12% relative risk reduction in terms of cardiovascular death. That upper bounds of the confidence interval it just hits 1.00 with a p-value of 0.052. And so strongly suggestive that these drugs do in fact reduce cardiovascular mortality in um, the context of particularly mildly reduced to preserved EF um, and definitely I suspect that if we had greater evidence, either with greater sample size or longer follow up, um, then we likely would have seen such signals. Yeah, are well,
1: thoughts? are there plans for extended follow
0: up? Oh, it's a good question. And, you know, these trials are really global experiences. For instance, Deliver was conducted over 20 different countries. And so individually linking these uh, these countries with, for instance, claims data is, is challenging at a global scale. And so we don't have long-term follow-up planned with any of the trials. However, we have reshaped the evidence to attempt to project the available evidence, for instance, from Deliver. Which was conducted over a median of 2.3 years over lifetime use and in fact we do see um, based on that these projections at least that these are estimated to afford long-term treatment benefits including in improving event-free survival so this is uh, of course has limitations alongside a projection and uh, uh, as an analytic approach but i think it is compelling evidence so, Carolyn, I'd love to deep dive into the next question here around EGFR dip, and we hear this commonly as it occurs after SGLT2 inhibitor initiation, in which you have acute EGFR declines. So, the question is, what should be done in that context? And perhaps as a follow-up, um, can we use SGLT2 inhibitors at some point, even in patients with Truly advanced chronic kidney disease.
1: Wow, another important question clinically. Well, I would first start by saying we know of other drugs that we commonly use that cause this dip, and that's the renin angiotensin blockers. They also cause a dip. We're comfortable using them. We don't stop um, the these neural. Hormonal modulators if the patient is well. And we know that eventually uh, in patients with diabetes um, and heart failure, that these drugs are actually good for the kidneys. Well, it's the exact same thing with the SGLT2 inhibitor. So I would say, first of all, I do not personally routinely check for the dip because then you get stuck with oh, what do you do? And how how dippy is too dippy and, and and so on, which which no one can really, you know, answer. And then I keep in mind the totality of the evidence that there's overwhelming renal protection benefit with the SGLD2 inhibitors, be it in diabetes, be it in heart failure, um, you know, it, eventually it actually reduces the rate of decline of GFR. Um, uh, whether it's in HEFPEF or HEFREF and so on. So we keep that in mind. And so what do you do if you see it? I would assess the patient and make sure the patient is clinically well. Make sure that the dip is not because he's suddenly going hypovolemic or has some other cause like I don't know, a renal artery stenosis or or suddenly got a bad infection or the other things or UTI, something that that I, I should be looking out for and treating. But if not, the patient's completely well, tolerating the medications and in fact getting better, then hang on. Be brave, hang on, and then check again, and it should be you know over the dip. Now, could these therapies somehow be used in stage 5 CKD, maybe even in patients who are on dialysis? Well, I think we need more data. These patients were routinely um, excluded from the current trials, but there are ongoing BRAVE trials looking at this. And so with that and a very related question, um, Muthu, for acute illnesses now in that situation, would you stop the SGLT2 inhibitor?
0: Uh, It's a great question. And really, we've had a shift in our thinking over time. Initially, we were fairly conservative about stopping routinely SGLT2 inhibitors in the context of, for instance, hospitalization, uh, including for non-cardiac illness. Um, However, now with the really impressive set of, of safety data that we've approved now over um, really thousands of patients randomized globally to the SGLT2 inhibitors. We've learned that the rates of really uh, ketoacidosis especially in those without diabetes is exceedingly low and we've also seen in dedicated trials of hospitalized patients That these adverse events really don't occur or occur at a frequency that is very, very low. And so, in general, now for most patients, they can continue an SGLT2 inhibitor. However, if the patient is really truly in an ICU, for instance, intubated or not taking oral intake, those are the patients that I consider maybe that we would stop the SGLT2 inhibitor.
1: Oh, uh, I couldn't agree more, and I'm sure that you were also referring to uh, Dr. Kassiford's dairy Jeff study, where he, right, randomized patients with COVID. Although once again, these are not like um, ICU patients, and, and, and so on, already um, acidotic patients and things like that. So, thank you for that.
0: Perfect. So I um, these next two, it looks like will be relatively quick ones what was the definition of heart failure with improved ejection fraction in the delivered
1: trial? Oh that's a that's a good one and and simple enough that it was simply if a patient has heart failure and has an ejection fraction right now that's above 40 percent but somewhere in the history had an ejection fraction below 40 percent that's how we define heart failure with improved ejection fraction so the implications of course of this subgroup analysis is important these patients appear to benefit just as much as the other patients in deliver and it really implies that if even if a patient who used to have ref now has an improved ejection fraction but is still symptomatic we may need to add an SGLT2 inhibitor namely dapagliflozin on top of the therapies they are having despite the increase in ejection fraction. So I think it's super cool and we'll see how guidelines embrace this. But now one simple one for you. What about total hospitalizations? And we mean both heart failure and non-heart failure, like total.
0: Yeah, it's a very, very important question, especially in this older population of heart failure preserved ejection fraction when there's significant competing comorbidities that may introduce competing risks. We have presented data for a large and clinically important reduction in heart failure hospitalizations. We have not presented data yet about all-cause hospitalizations. But as a teaser, we do indeed also see reductions in that total burden of all-cause hospitalizations. So I'd ask um, the uh, question asker, as well as our listeners, to stay tuned for that data. Um, we, Really, the next question is also an interesting one about specific patient groups, um, including ones who I believe were not quite uh, enrolled in the deliver trial or other H- trials. For instance, that significant valvular heart disease or amyloid cardiomyopathy or type 1 diabetes. What do we do with these patients who have coexisting heart failure?
1: Yeah, great question. And I think the key thing to know is that like, even DELIVER excluded patients with a primary valve disease or known amyloid. Now, could some patients with some valve disease or could amyloid that was undiagnosed have been uh, included in DELIVER? Of course, but we don't don't know um, uh, well enough in those specific subgroups exactly the risk-benefit ratio. What do we do then clinically for me? I think that if there's the congestive state of heart failure, I do think that perhaps these patients will at the least not be harmed by an SGLT2 inhibitor. And so treating that congestive state with SGLT2 inhibitors as with diuretics and with the other medications, um, would be a way to go since we don't know uh, that, that there was underlying amyloid. But the key thing is not to miss these other treatable mimickers. So the key, key thing is to be on high alert for the infiltrative cardiomyopathies that have specific treatments like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, cardiac amyloidosis, or valve disease that if severe, means that we should intervene with perhaps um, non-pharmacological approaches now the case with type 1 diabetes though i would be very very cautious we don't have enough data and so personally i take that as a contraindication uh, to the use of sglt2 inhibitors but you know as with the lower um, gfrs and all these things i am so eagerly awaiting more data now can i pass it back to you to ask do SGLT2 inhibitors
0: improve ejection fraction? Very, very important question, especially in those with with reduced ejection fraction when that improvement over time is something that we really actively seek and look out for, especially has important, for instance, device implications over time. And there's a relatively modest set of, of data from more smaller studies um, uh, perhaps derived from more mechanistic studies, including with sensitive measures of ejection fraction like with cardiac MRI that was conducted serially, that has shown that indeed the SGLB2 inhibitors do modestly improve ejection fraction over time. Um, that said, I don't think that it is a predominant mechanism. We do see that um, ejection fraction is improved and we think that that remodeling benefit is one component to the overall benefit afforded by the SGLT2 inhibitors. Yeah, so oh, that Carol, was. This me- has been a wonderful, wonderful discussion. And I'm going to leave you um, uh, in this last minute with this last question and are SGLT2 inhibitors all the same?
1: Ah, oh, difficult question to answer because unless all the trials are made, I can't be more sure than you can. However, The clinical implications of the question are, I still prefer to refer to evidence-based SGLT2 inhibitors when I'm treating my patients with heart failure. And there are only two. There are dapagliflozin and empagliflozin. Now, sotagliflozin, you may consider that it had a trial, although remember that's an SGLT1 and 2 inhibitor, and it wasn't, uh, you know, those trials stopped early and had to change our endpoints and things like that. So I would stick to the evidence-based SGLT2 inhibitors in the management of my patients with heart failure.
0: Oh, so I couldn't agree with you more on each of these points, and these were just the top 10. We've had dozens of others, and we look forward to uh, um, speaking with you all. Uh, directly about these as we all navigate SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure with mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction. Um, Professor Lamb, it has been an honor. We really appreciate your time, um, and energy, and global efforts in disseminating the best science around this topic, and of course, for joining us uh, on Heart Failure in Focus. Thank you once again.
1: Thank you. Honor was mine.